Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Deborah G. Plant, author of the book of Greed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All addressing the direct linkage of slavery, the 13th Amendment, mass incarceration, and the ways in which exclusive wealth and power undermines freedom for all of us. Deborah is editor of the New York Times bestseller, Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. Deborah Plant is an African-American and Africana Studies independent scholar, writer, and literary critic, and she holds MA and PhD degrees in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and traveled to Benin in West Africa as a Fulbright-Hayes Fellow. Deborah Plant grew up in Louisiana but now lives in Florida, and she joins us today via Zoom from Florida. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Oh, you're very welcome, and uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Mark. I had one question. I had a couple questions, actually, about your name. When you were bad as a young girl, did your mother call you Deborah, or did she call you, <laughs> had to call you something different, Debbie? You know, I don't know. What did she do to, maybe she said, Deborah, G. <laughs> no, actually, that's not even the name used in my household. Almost everybody in my household has at least three names. And for most of us, our parents use our middle name. So it wouldn't be calling one name or the other. It would just be very emphatically calling that one name. Okay. (laughs) I was just Mark, and so they couldn't do anything fancy with that. (laughs) The other thing I wondered was the name Plant. And since so much of what you write about in Of Greed and Glory is about the legacy of slavery to today, and plantations fit in there, Plant seemed like a bad name to some degree. Do you know where it came from? You know, I have researched it, but nothing definitive. I sort of thought it might have been an abbreviated form of Plantagenet from French, given that we're in Louisiana, but I don't know if that's really the case. And then I was really taken aback when I moved to Florida, and there's a city called Plant City. So apparently it's sort of common, but I'm not sure of the source of it, although I, I found nothing conclusive. There is so much in Of Greed and Glory that we're only going to be able to hit just a few of the highlights here today for Spirit in Action, but I'd like to hit as many as we can. One thing that I want to just, it's my overview, having just finished the book this morning, is that I think at some point you could have been a really good preacher. You certainly know how to speak powerfully and clearly and going right to the root of things. Had you ever considered going down that line? No, although, like I said, we went to church every Sunday. (laughs) And that folk preacher and that folk preacher voice is so much a part of our culture. I even have written about that in relation to Dust Tracks on the Road, uh, Zora Hurston's work, where one of her books, Jonas Gorevine, is about her father, who was a minister, and his ability to speak in that sermonic voice and tone. So, no, I've studied it. I've studied the form, but... I have not intentionally, consciously moved in that direction of preacher 
Well, there's a good share of it in this book that I think people should just go out, stand on the street corners and read some of this. And I have a feeling it would make things percolate for folks. I think that foundational to the book is that our society has this mistaken idea that slavery actually ended as opposed to morphing. I'm sure you can put that in better words than I can, Deborah. So why don't you take a stab at it? Yeah, we do have that idea. It recalls, for me, James Baldwin, a you know, 20th century writer, activist, who said that history is something that most of us think that it's a, you know, a record of things in the past and that we read a book about it and our idea is that it's something that happened and it's over. But history is living and history is within us and we carry it with us. We carry it with us because so much of it is unconscious because we don't really pay attention to or give attention to how history repeats itself and not so much repeats itself, but reproduces itself. And slavery is one of those phenomena that gets reproduced, but because it's in a different form, we can't really discern that that's what we're dealing with. Uh, the 13th Amendment, as you, I'm sure, well know, declared that slavery was abolished in the United States and its territories. But as Brian Stevenson has pointed out, slavery did not end with the 13th Amendment. Slavery evolved. It took on new forms. And some of those new forms looked like convict leasing. It looked like tenant farming and sharecropping. And later on, it looks like mass incarceration. But we, we sort of see mass incarceration as something distinct from the institution of slavery. But that's because what we are missing is really understanding the essence of slavery, not the form that it takes, but the essence that generates the forms that it takes. And that essence has everything to do with this notion of a master, this notion of a slave, this notion that someone who presumes to be some superior master uh, can at will, if he, she, they have the force, have the power, have the structures to consider those who are, as they see, inferior to them, to subject them to the will of that so-called master, subject them, enslave them, exploit them, extract their labor, extract their resources, take what they will, and it's okay. It's justified, and it's sold as being justifiable. When we look at this essence, this master-slave dynamic, when we look at the will of one to dominate, subjugate, to exploit and enslave another, when we look at that dynamic, it's not only very clearly seen in the so-called justice system and prison institutions, but it's also everywhere else that we look. If we look in corporate America, if we look in our own homes, if we look at how various state officials treat citizens in those states, and when we look at this issue of inferiority, superiority, master, slave, domination, subjugation, authority to speak, to do, repression of the personal sovereignty of not only individuals, but the collective. When we see that essence, when we see that dynamic, we understand that slavery is less about an institution than it is about a mindset and a worldview. And that mindset and that worldview reproducing those structures that basically have the very self-same outcome. 
So slavery, as it was seen in the United States, was mostly, not completely, black people, native peoples from this country are also slaves. And sometimes in some places, there were actually blacks or natives who had slaves of their own, even in this country, though that was a, a tiny fraction of that horrendous institution. When things have shifted throughout the country from the formal practice of slavery to mass imprisonment, Jim Crow, the sharecropping, all those things that you mentioned already, convict leasing, how disproportional are the numbers of blacks and white to their representation in the population as a whole? Because one possibility, which hopefully wasn't even nearly approached, was that there's the escape clause in the 13th Amendment, which allows slavery for imprisoned people, people duly judged guilty. Possibly the governments, particularly in the southern states, could have taken all the African Americans and put them into prisons and said, see, we're not doing slavery, just imprisoning them, right? So how close did they come to doing that? Well, this is exactly, they didn't come close to doing that. They did that, you know, creating or changing laws that facilitated criminalizing newly emancipated African-Americans and changing the law to justify, say, something that might have been seen as a misdemeanor, making that a felony. And therefore, you, you are subject to incarceration. It's not like they came close to doing it. This is what they did and use that loophole to justify funneling these newly freed African-Americans into the prison system through convict leasing or just in prison specifically or directly and reclaiming their escaped, quote unquote, labor force. And as you point out, yes, there were a small number, but yet there were African-Americans as as well as people of, of other cultural backgrounds who practiced enslavement. Which is to say, we're looking at those who were targeted in a general sense, but really what had this institution be what it was, was that drive for money, for profit. It's greed. And this is one of the things I was trying to emphasize in the book. And also this underscores my choice for the title of Greed and Glory. It's like there are those of us of whatever ethnic background who are so ambitious to have more than we need, that we will adopt that mentality, that worldview of slavery. We will adopt that and generate and continue to generate and formulate institutions and structures wherein this horrible hierarchy plays itself out for those who assume that they are do that, that they are the privileged ones. They are the elites. They deserve to have all of the wealth there is. They deserve to have all of the authority. They deserve to have the voice. They deserve to have all of the profit. It doesn't matter who they exploit. And exploitation, that's the means to the end of greed and glory, or what I call sometimes false glory, that idea of living that privileged elite life that puts you above everyone else, above the common lot, above the law even then this is what happens. This is what occurs. So when we're looking at post-Civil War and that labor force that generated all of that wealth for plantation owners and business owners, merchants and what have you, there was the idea we have to regain control of that labor force. And the convict leasing system and the mass incarceration that began at that point in time 
this was their means of reproducing slavery, but without calling it slavery. Back when I was in, I guess, ninth and 10th grade for history class, we talked, you know, you go through U.S. history, and as they described it in the course, there was this happy time reconstruction in between the Civil War and when the worst abuses of Jim Crow and the rest took hold. Was there a happy time when there wasn't mass incarceration for African Americans? There was, of course, the, I think I could use the term jubilee of emancipation itself, right? It's like we're free, we're no longer, not only not slaves, but this political structure has been put in place to endow us with citizenship. So you know, these are things to be happy about, to, to be glad about. But at the same time, as African-Americans were actually putting this new citizenship identity, putting it into practice, those who had been in positions of the master or the master class, this was enraging to them. This was insult to them. This was an abomination in actuality. So once Andrew Johnson basically rescinded even the whole business of 40 acres and a mule with people trying to get on their feet, he rescinded that and returned not only land and property back to those Confederate operatives, he also returned authority to them. So they now have autonomy as officials of state and government and what have you. And they use that power to re-enslave the very people who that civil war contributed to their emancipation. So what happy time that was, what joy, what celebration was short-lived. There is a book titled, My Folks Don't Want Me to Talk About Slavery. And in this book, people who were newly emancipated and a generation or so, well, not a whole generation, but some decades out of emancipation and their stories were collected And some of them talk about how living after slavery was oftentimes worse than being in slavery itself. They say it's worse than slavery. And that was freedom, right? Why? Because you have no resources, right? You're on your own, but the government does not assist you in establishing yourself as a free, autonomous, independent person. What little bit was given by way of this promise of 40 acres That was rescinded. That was rescinded. And what resources were available to these millions of people who are free, but have what? And that, of course, reminds me of uh, Hirschman's work, Barracoon. Once Oluwale Kosla, who is also called Kujo Lewis in that narrative, once he and the others who came over with him were emancipated, they had nothing. They had nothing. And they go to Timothy Mayer, who was the one who was responsible for them being brought into America, into Alabama in the first place, and says, well, you've taken us from our country. You've enslaved us for five and a half years. The war has been fought and we're free now, but we have nothing. Why don't you give us a piece of this land so we can build our homes? And Timothy Mayer says to them, are you crazy? You think I'm going to throw property at property? Because they weren't considered human beings. They were still considered in the minds of those, uh, that so-called master class, as property. And as the story goes, they had to scrimp and, and, and save for every little thing that they got. 
uh, no assistance while at the same time also being exploited, the labor being exploited, the attempt to voice themselves through voting, the attempt to repress that. And so everything that should have allowed us to be happy as free American citizens was trampled over. It was ignored. It was dismissed. Although we had citizenship, we were still treated as property. And the law, although slavery was abolished, the law facilitated our re-enslavement. And so that victory, that emancipation, that joy of not being seen as a particular slave owner's property, that was short-lived, not because anyone wanted to remain in slavery, but because those who had that power, and I will call the force and the lack of humanity and so many other things we can call it, those who were in those positions just wanted to perpetuate, to continue what they were experiencing prior to emancipation. The whole business of being the so-called master, that's a mentality, that's an attitude, that's an orientation. They felt it their birthright to have that and to maintain that. Yeah. You know, one thing I found amazing, if I have my facts straight, there was a move to impeach Andrew Johnson for all of his bad policies. That vote to impeach was defeated by one vote. If there had been one vote differently, he would have been impeached. And who knows, maybe the whole direction of working in the aftermath of Reconstruction, the 40 acres and a mule and all of that, maybe that actually would have happened just by one vote. And so each time a person says they're not going to vote, I say, well, you could be the vote in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, there were always these moments, these opportunities where things could have gone right. And but for some one thing or several things or particular pressure on this side or that side or or what have you didn't allow us to break through that. And we have to be mindful of that, because when we have opportunities and not even just have, but create opportunities to really create the kind of America that we want, we have to be active about helping that to come into realization. One of the things also that I, I try to emphasize is that there is nothing inherent in time that will bring us the America that is ideal in terms of what our forebears, our founders, our framers, and freedom fighters, what they were trying to create. That doesn't just happen. And it's not necessarily something that's going to evolve just because time flows. That's not the case. We have to really understand that those ideals and principles of freedom, justice, liberty for all, we have to move from giving lip service to that to actually embodying those ideals. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to check with you specifically, Deborah, was you grew up, your home is Louisiana, you're in Florida now. It may be a naive part of me, but I somehow believed, at least around New Orleans and perhaps in Louisiana, that there was a little bit more enlightened view of race because of its French background as opposed to its English background. 
I think that the French turned against use of slavery and that kind of thing, rights of people, a bit earlier than the general populace in the United States. Did you experience any of that, or is that just a mistaken view I have of France and its effect on New Orleans? France appears to be progressive and liberal then and now, but France didn't really turn from enslavement. When I think about France, I think about Haiti. And I think about the fact that Haiti, through revolution, won its freedom from France. But France set out to re-enslave Haiti and impose on Haiti this bill of reparations and demanded that Haiti pay France for the slaves that France lost during that revolution. And Haiti has only recently, recently in the 20th century, recently paid the reparations that France demanded. When I look at colonialism, when I look at French so-called colonies and so-called post-colonialism, I mean, that's not even a real thought or idea, something called post-colonialism, because European powers, and France is one of them, simply re-enslaved, not necessarily physically, but economically. And so they tie these countries into their economy in such a way that the wealth of those former colonies, so much of it goes to France. So I don't see France as any more liberal or progressive than the English. There may be a different flavor of colonialism, a different flavor, an inflection that makes it appear as though one particular European power may be less barbaric and, and less inhumane. But that's that's on the surface. That's on the surface. So in Louisiana, you know, Louisiana is, you know, this is where my brother is. This is where my brother is, is incarcerated. So the idea that French influence somehow might have had our culture, Louisiana culture, become also more humanitarian is not the case. Do I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure about this, that maybe it was New Orleans was a safe spot, even during slavery, that you could be a free African-American in New Orleans, whereas if you stepped into the rest of Louisiana, that you lost any of those rights or freedoms. That's maybe, that's the thing I was thinking about that keyed this for me. Well, there is the lore about places like Congo Square, for instance, where voodoo priestesses had a certain, a certain power and a certain authority. So I would say, yes, I would agree. But I wouldn't be absolute in that because when authorities choose to be harsh and choose to show who really is the authority, they do so. There is no safe space. If, if there's no safe space for everyone everywhere, there's really no safe space. And that safe space is only safe until those who have permitted it a certain false security when they choose to show who really controls that space, they do. One of the things that really surprised me 
was, I don't know, this is, I've lived in Wisconsin almost all my life, except by the way, I lived for two years in Togo, West Africa. So you're traveling to Benin right next door. I actually put my foot in Benin once. I was, the Mono River is the boundary between the two countries in the southern part. I stepped over there. It was a time when it wasn't easy to travel through Benin because of the government they had there at that time. But part of the thing is growing up in Wisconsin, so much of the racial politics that was George Wallace and all that in the South was foreign to me. It was somewhat distant. There's racism here, but it was a different flavor, right? The idea of imprisonment at hard labor, life with hard labor, for some reason, I thought was a thing of the past. Certainly by the 1940s, 50s, it must have been gone. And evidently it's not. I'm not sure even what that exactly means. What I have in my mind is the movies of men on a chain gang breaking up rocks for some reason. Why they would have them do that work, I do not understand. But hard labor was that. What does being imprisoned at hard labor, what does that actually mean? What kind of work or what are they doing to you? For me, based on my knowledge of my brother's experience, hard labor shows up in two specific kinds of ways. And that is working in the fields on these swaths of land that used to be, quote unquote, uh, slave plantations, right? And so Angola is built on these very same lands. And the very same work that enslaved peoples were forced to do, whether it's cotton or sugarcane or rice or whatever it is, whatever the crop was, the same kind of labor is exactly what those who are in prison at Angola, this is what they are forced to do as well. My brother wrote that when he first went to Angola, he said he was working in the fields. He was either cultivating crops or chopping grass or fixing fences or digging ditches, you know, and so working being forced to do that. And from some things I've read also to the point where these men are not allowed to leave what work they're doing to even take care of their, you know, personal needs. And so when he first got there, this is, this is the work he says of every new person who comes into Angola. You're going to be in the fields. You're going to be worked in the same way enslaved peoples were worked on that plantation during historical slavery. So since then, he has had jobs that are not in the field. But at the same time, which gets me to the second sort of description of hard labor is that you have no choice but to work. Whatever the labor is, you don't have a choice to not work. If you don't do whatever it is you've been appointed to do, well, you'll be punished to the extent that you either relent or you will suffer. And what also makes it hard labor is that this is not even, for my brother anyway, it's not even 10 years or 20 years. This is for the rest of his life. You know, he was sentenced to life at hard labor without the possibility of parole. And that that is a definition of enslavement. Again, the 13th Amendment 
and you document this in your book of Greed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All, you document some of the history of how this escape clause in the 13th Amendment, where it says, well, except duly convicted people. That's right. Yes. And that evidently has been replicated on state levels and constitutions and other things. Well, one of the glimmers of hope that I saw in your book, Deborah, was where you mentioned there's been a movement to eliminate that clause from all these constitutions. I haven't seen it at work yet on the national level. Could you talk about that movement where it's actually been successful and where it's happening now? Several states, including uh, Utah and, and Nebraska and several others, have passed legislation that takes this criminal exception loophole out of their state constitution. Louisiana was another state that put this on the ballot, but because the languaging of it was not quite right and it created some confusion, it, it didn't pass. But I'm hoping that the Congress persons there in Louisiana will put that back on the ballot and have it written in a language that makes it clear to people what the objective is. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're talking to Deborah G. Plant. She is author of the book Of Greed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All. And she's talking to us from Florida, although she's originally from Louisiana. You'll find a link to her, the Harper's Collins editors that she works with is the best site to find her. And I've got that link on northernspiritradio.org. So if you want to track her down, track down more of her writings, both her writings and the books she's edited and so on, that's a good place to start looking. One of the things, Deborah, that you said that you wrote about in the book that I found particularly interesting was the whole history of the Angola prison, because some people might think it's coincidence of being in the region that the plantations of Angola and this prison of Angola, that it's just happenstance of name. But you document the exact plantations and the, their movement from one to the others and the direct use of prison labor that they press from one to the others. Is that something you knew about before your brother was in prison there? How did you, you're, you're an English major, not a history major, but you've got some pretty great history going on here. Well, well thank you for that. Uh, no, I, I didn't know about it. I didn't know about most of what I researched and, and wrote about in the book in relation to Angola. That was news to me about how that place that's called Angola now how it came into being and the various differently named plantations that became basically this one whole thing that eventually became called Angola. And then once the prison population was centralized, because they were initially, as you remember, those people in, in stripes with chains and balls and whatnot, you know, that's, that's an apt description of convict leasing labor. Right. You see them on the side of the road or, or whatever, or in the woods or, or what have you. Once all that population that would be in various parts of the state and sometimes even in other states, once they were centralized into this place on that plantation, they kept the same name. And the name of the plantation now became 
the and and actually the prison is not called Angola, really. That's a popular name. The actual official name of the prison is Louisiana State Penitentiary. That's but it's Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. But popularly, this is what everybody calls it. And no, I didn't know all of this history. And I didn't even know that right here in Florida, there was an Angola community. That community was a community of Maroons, African and Native American. And they had created this huge community of hundreds of people. And they had escaped enslavement, come down into Florida and were living a free life until Andrew Jackson took it upon himself to wipe them out. The idea was, you know, once Florida became a state belonging to the United States, then to have free people was anathema to this will to have Florida as as a so-called slave state. So those who could escape did, but many were either re-enslaved or killed. And so there's a, a was, a, there's, you know, the documentation of an Angola community here in Florida as well. I was unaware of that till I started doing my research on Angola. So much of what you write in Of Greed and Glory is connecting the dots, historical, cultural, governmental linkages to what happened, what we have now, and where we need to go to be in a better place. One of the ones that just blew my mind, because I pride myself on trying to stay in touch with the real context of the news, not just the headlines, but what's underneath it. And what you wrote about Ferguson blew my mind, the whole history and how the debtor prison system kind of thing that they built there. That seems like such an indictment of how we've replaced the official system of slavery with an imprisonment system of debt bondage. Say a little bit more about that. Well, the whole use of this phenomenon we call slavery was to extract wealth from those considered basically undeserving of maintaining the, the fruits of their own labor. And so to become rich and to become wealthy or to become somehow more advanced at the expense of others, however that's done, that's the modus operandi of slavery. And so, you know, in Ferguson, to add to the city coffers, to continue this this master-slave paradigm, if you will, and to extract the wealth from the very citizens that you're there to basically, as a government, to see to their welfare, not to undermine it. But that was the dynamic when the idea continues that Black people are criminals, that Black people are not deserving of a quality life, let alone a quality life wherein they have some kind of economic comfort and some kind of economic security. But to criminalize them, which is what they did, whatever your infraction was, we're going to charge you for that and whatever else we can charge you with and force you to pay it or put you in in jail or put you in jail and then charge you fees because you haven't paid and you can't work. You, You know, so 
it's a vicious cycle that dehumanized the African-American demographic of that city. And to do so, so blatantly, you know, writing memos and whatnot, saying what they do. And we can see very clearly with Ferguson, the idea of privilege at play. When those who are white and they've committed some infraction, well, their friends in, in office will take care of whatever the, the issue is, take care of the parking ticket or the speeding ticket or whatever the case may be. Whereas those who are not part of the privileged class, they are exploited to the extent that the privileged demographic of Ferguson just reaps the benefit of that. Whatever the city wants, whatever the city needs, rather than raising money in a way that is equal, equally spread in terms of what the citizens contribute to what the city needs, it's let's do whatever it is that we want to do to engage in to extract as much as we can from those that we don't really see them as part of the city. One of the things that I found when I was looking at Ferguson was that it was one of those what they call sundown towns. Whereas if you're not white, whatever you are, and especially if you are a person of color or an African-American, do not let the sun go down, you know, and stay in this town. It will not be good for you. But over time, the black population began to grow. Even though the black population began to grow, that idea of Ferguson being a white town, a whites only town, actually, that idea maintained. And the exploitation of the African-American population was part of maintaining that idea of the white slash master class over black so-called non-citizen. A non-citizen of Ferguson, who cares about the rights of blacks in terms of being a citizen of America? They did not. The idea was black people were inferior to them. And as history has taught them, also there for the exploitation, there for the extraction. And they did this. They didn't hide it. They didn't hide this. As I indicated before, this is relevant. You know, it, it comes out in, the, in their memos. It comes out even when the federal government comes in to investigate and they have these uh, discussions with the people of Ferguson, black and white. And they basically say, well, you know, these people are inferior and whatever situation that they're in, it's because they're basically irresponsible people. And so this idea of blacks being lazy, irresponsible, non-citizens, this was the mentality. And this was definitely expressed in the political economy of that city. If I recall correctly, the population of Ferguson, a large majority were black and the police department was all white, which that tells you something when that kind of setup is there. Documenting that kind of detail was really influential for me in seeing how the nuts and bolts of how this works. Yeah, Let's cover a few more things. I know we don't have a lot more time. One of the phrases you use in the book repeatedly in a number of different ways, I think I'm just too old to know <laughs> this usage of it. For instance, you, you mentioned at one point racialized whites. Now, I'm used to being, ra I see racist whites, 
that's a phrase I would know, but what's a racialized white as opposed to a racist white? Thank you for asking that. I appreciate that question. When we look at colonial America and we look at the fact that, as you know and have pointed out, in these colonies, not only African people were subject to forced servitude, but also Europeans and indigenous peoples. The thing of it is, is that in those early years, colonial years of America, people actually got along. There was not this abhorrence of someone from this ethnic background or that one. People got along. People married, had babies. They even escaped together. And see, when you're trying to control the labor, you will do what you can to make sure that your labor is under your control. And one of the ways to keep labor under control was to pit Europeans against Africans and indigenous people. So they wrote these laws that says, you know, if a white person or Christian, because they would conflate those terms, white and Christian, European, if a white person slash Christian is having any kind of relationships with a black person, you will be banished. You will be punished. They will let you know that that's not acceptable. It's not appropriate. And they would do everything that they could to create some kind of enmity between Europeans or quote unquote whites and blacks and indigenous people. Up until that point, Europeans didn't call themselves white. There were no white people. So this begins the racialization of white people. When those who wanted to basically divide and conquer the labor And when they saw that people had a natural attraction to one another and they appreciated one another, et cetera, et cetera, they wanted to destroy that. And the way that they destroyed it is to not only try to separate whites from black, whether they were enslaved or indentured or whatever the case, it didn't matter, but to create that separation to control the labor, to control society and how society was evolving. And especially to keep that person who was African or of African descent, to keep them in that category of being enslaved forever in perpetuity, durante vita and all of that. And so it was a matter of divide and conquer. And part of that division was to inject into the relations of blacks and whites and indigenous people to inject race as a causative factor in terms of who is privileged, who's not, who's going to be punished for being interrelated with whomever, this begins the whole indoctrination of Europeans as white people and forcing on them basically a certain orientation in terms of what's called race. So people who are otherwise saw the humanity of Black people, of Indigenous people, respected that humanity, and embraced that humanity in all kinds of personal and intimate ways. The so-called powers that be, those who wanted to dominate that economy, also felt the need to dominate the labor. And part of dominating that labor was to divide and separate those who who made up that, that labor pool and that labor class. And so we get 
So whites are basically indoctrinated, they're taught to turn against people of color. And this is the racialization. This is what we see some political officials doing these days, turning, quote unquote, white people against people of color, against marginalized groups. This becomes, unfortunately, a distraction from what's really going on. And that's all of us being exploited economically, all of us having these challenges in terms of the quality of our lives and whatnot. But if I can stoke that that hate, of race hate, then that gives some of these more uncomfortable kind of politicians a way into their next particular office that they're trying to buy for. And I think what I'm really trying to get at here is that people do get along. And that is seen as a problem for people who want to get into office, not by tending to the needs and the welfare of the whole of the community, you know, in general, the community or the nation. They don't want to do the work that needs to be done to deal with all of these things that we we're dealing with, whether it's the, you know, shrinking of the middle class or you know, student debt, unaffordable housing, people who shoot up our schools and whatnot, they don't want to spend their time and energy on that kind of issue. It's easier to create all of this hate and divisiveness and what they call cultural wars and all of that and ride into office with that. But that so does not serve the American people. This is more of that racialization. And remember, folks, Deborah Plant's subtitle for her book of Greed and Glory is In Pursuit of Freedom for All. This isn't just about someone. It's about those who have been left out from freedom in particular and had their freedoms curtailed. Just one or two more things, if I can, Deborah. One of them is, how long did you spend in Benin? Many of our listeners may not even know where Benin is on the West Coast, the Gold Coast of Africa. But since I lived in Togo next door for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer, I was teaching in a village. Because of that, I'm, I was very aware of Benin at the time. How long were you there? Only for about a month. Well, that's a start. You should have dropped by and visited. <laughs> what year was it? This summer, summer of 2023. Well, I would have, I would love to go there too. I've traveled a lot in West Africa and a fair amount in East Africa. I've traveled much more there than I have, for instance, in Europe or something, because it's so much more interesting. The people are such warm-hearted welcomers. I really feel fortunate that way to have had the time there and the introduction I did to it. One last thing we better finish before we, we do this, because people really need to read the whole book of Greed and Glory in Pursuit of Freedom for All. One of the major issues that you draw is the linkage between money and power and this elimination of freedom. And so slavery is just one way in which that was implemented. Mass incarceration movement is simply another way to control wealth and power. So you look at that in many ways in our society. Any last words you want to toss in there? Because I'm, I'm sorry, but this, this Spirit in Action program has to end so it can be broadcast. But what would you like to say about that? Well, I want to say that we really need to pay attention to greed. When we look at the fact that the wealth of the nation is in the hands of 10%, and of that 10%, 
1% controls most of that. So what about the rest of us? What about the middle class? This is about this idea of excess, this idea that a few people can control the economy of a whole nation is really something we have to pay attention to because, I mean, when we look at the quality of our lives, when we look at the fact that we say the middle class is shrinking, it's not shrinking, it's being exploited. And it's being basically viewed as more the same in terms of population, a demographic whose wealth can be extracted. And that wealth that's being extracted goes to that 10% and that 1% within that 10%. And I say we have to really understand that because we have to take a lot of the responsibility for how things are going so that we can actually empower ourselves to live the kind of lives we want to live uh, in this political economy. The rich gets richer because they keep taking. And if we don't know how they're taking, they will just keep taking. If we're unconscious of how we, quote unquote, lose our wealth, how we lose our freedom, how we lose our sovereignty, then it will simply keep happening. So in order to empower ourselves economically and otherwise, politically as well, we have to look at how we're being undermined. And we have to look at how corporate America is reproducing historical slavery in this day and age. As they say, knowledge is power. In order to re-empower ourselves, we have to empower ourselves with the knowledge of how this extraction of labor and wealth continues to happen. The only thing that's different is now is happening to most of Americans. And we talk about that and a lot more with Deborah Plant, if we had the time, but we don't. And she's had a long, long day talking to a whole lot of folks. That makes me really appreciate all the more that you give me this time, Deborah. There is much more in her book of Greed and Glory and Pursuit of Freedom for All on northernspiritradio.org. I have a link to that. Please comment on this interview. You can donate to support our work, but please get a hold of her book. And by increasing your knowledge, we'll have better control of our lives and be able to make this a better world. And that's what, of course, Deborah Plant is working for. Thank you so much, Deborah, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you. This has been a real delight. You know, it's been a long day, but I'm very happy that you were at the end of this day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You've been a real joy. And what you do is is just beautiful. Thank you for what you do. Thank you so very much. On our way out for today's Spirit in Action, I want to share a song on exactly the kind of issues we've been talking about. The song is by Cash Dahl, and it's called 13th Amendment. And Cash is joined by Aunt Clemens for this performance. Links related to this program are on northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Cash Doll, Aunt Clemens, and 13th Amendment. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this. Freedom.
13th Amendment. We thought this would be the one that would end it, but we still harass, still mass incarceration. So much for the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh, but be careful, black men. I know you eager to climb. Slavery is legal if you're convicted of a crime. And when that crime that you committed probably don't fit the time, have you building ships for NASA and they pay you a dime? A conspiracy, they try to censor you when you speak. They can't hide behind the sheets, so not they do you like me. Meanwhile, you taking chances out here trying to survive. Yeah, not a lot has changed since 1865, but still they try to teach you that everybody's equal until you up for the same job as white people. Just know until we walk into the gates of the kingdom, we gon' stand here united, ready to fight for our freedom. Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 